continuing our reopen efforts. And if you are a little one, uh, you're invited to go with Miss Elaine Patton for uh, children's Bible lesson. And so uh, let's sing them out. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Good to see Barbara Hammond here. If you didn't see her, she's here. I'm sure she just loved me pointing that out. <laughs> it is good to see you, Barbara. Um, Sean, it is his last Sunday. Going to miss you, brother. I thought about embarrassing him. I got some uh, some old photos, but he was never my nemesis like Chris was. Chris was always that thorn in the side, but going to miss you, brother. Going to miss you. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. We'll be reading those verses this morning. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. The Bible says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were gathered, were together, and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord God, as we consider and think about What a church does, we pray that we would take notice of the example set by the church in Jerusalem and see what it means even for us today to be the church in the 21st century. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. We worked through the majority of Acts 2 last week. Peter preaches the gospel to a large number of Jewish people. They've come from all over the world. And we get a sociological makeup of them back in verses, well, verse 5 says, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then specifically, we are told in verses 8 through 11, you have all these different peoples, they're hearing the gospel in their own language. And about 3,000 souls were baptized that day, we were told in verse 41. Peter concludes his presentation of the gospel by saying, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's conviction 
on the part of the people who heard. They are cut to the heart, and then the resolution of their conviction uh, is seen in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, about 3,000 people were saved that day, had their sins washed away, and received the Holy Spirit, just as Peter said they would. This is, as we talked about last week, the birth of the church, the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. And so what did the church do after that? Well, that's where verses 42 through 47 come in. And we see a number of different ways in which the church lived and moved and had their being. We see what that first church did, what the Jerusalem church did in the days that followed. And we see, first of all, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to several things. And so the first aspect of the church that we see is devotion. They were devoted. They kept on devoting themselves. This corresponds to verse 46, day by day. This is a daily thing. Daily, they were devoted to several things. The first there is the apostles' teaching. And so the apostolic teaching is, well, it's the teaching of the apostles, right? <laughs> the apostles were teaching God's Word, probably utilizing the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, in order to teach God's will to the people. Remember, they didn't have a copy of the New Testament at this point. And so, again, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, so it probably would have been the Septuagint. That was their Bible. That was the Bible of the first church. But they also had the presence of the apostles. And the apostles were preaching. They were teaching the people, and they were doing this diligently. Uh, they sought to learn the Word of God so that they could do the will of God. J.W. Shepard, in his book, The Church, the falling away, and the restoration. I believe he captures this idea of being devoted to the apostles' teaching very well, quoting from Lyman Coleman. And it says, No trait of the primitive church was more remarkable than their profound reverence for the Scriptures and their diligent study of them. The Word of God dwelling in them and abounding was their meditation all the day long. Those who could read never went abroad without taking some part of the Bible with them. The women in their household labors wore some portion of the sacred roll hanging about their necks. The men made it the companion of their toil in the field and the workshop. Morning, noon, and night they read it at their meals. By the recitals of the narratives of sacred history, by constant reading, by paraphrase, by commentary, and by sacred song, they taught the scriptures diligently unto their children, talked of these heavenly themes when they sat in their house, when they walked by the way, when they laid themselves down, and when they rose up. One relates with great delight that he never sat at meat with origin, around A.D. 225, but one of the company read to the other. They never retired to rest without first reading the Bible. So diligently were they in this divine employment that prayers succeeded reading of the word 
and the reading of the Word to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in a similar way, brothers and sisters, we stand upon that rich heritage and we continue to devote ourselves to the apostolic teaching. But also, they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. And this includes mutual association, but it's also the sharing of common objects. It's more than just talking about the latest sports activity, the latest item of news. The sharing of common objects has to do with the sharing of sacred objects. The sharing of holy objects. Fellowship also indicates that everyone felt as though they were a part of the body. They felt like they belonged. It was a close sharing, and it involved relationships with one another. The joint participation in the body was, of course, predicated upon the fact that, first and foremost, these people were in fellowship with God. If a person was not in fellowship with God, there could not be that horizontal fellowship with one another. But because all of these were in fellowship with God, it opened up the lines of fellowship with one another. And they shared their lives with one another because they were part of the body. And again, they enjoyed fellowship with the head of the body, which is Christ. They devoted themselves also to the breaking of the bread. That's literally what it says in the original language. The breaking of the bread, and that seems to be Lord's Supper language. It's not to be confused with what we read about later on in verse 46, how they were breaking bread from house to house. Those would be the common meals. They got together in one another's homes, and they would eat together. Part of the fellowship aspect. But this, the breaking of the bread, seems to be specifically the Lord's Supper, communion, the table of the Lord. And just about every Bible scholar and Bible historian agrees that the church ate the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. That was their habitual practice. That was what they did. On, the su- on every Sunday, they would come together, they would break the bread, they would commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They would proclaim His death until He comes, just as they were instructed in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. And so we see, again, the break of the bread, the Lord's Supper. This was something the church was devoting themselves to. And then also they were devoting themselves to the prayers. Again, there's a definite article here uh, for the prayers, which seems to indicate these were certain and specific prayers, probably prayers that came from or were derived from the prayers that we read in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Maybe even some of the Psalms, the language of the Psalter, found its way into the prayers. It's interesting, in the very next chapter, that chapter begins, Acts chapter 3, with Peter and John going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And that further indicates these are not only set prayers, but set times of prayer that the early church was attending to. Uh, All of these things, the early Christians were devoting themselves to constantly. Uh, It's interesting the way that these early prayers come up. We we find one in Acts chapter 4, 
the end of Acts chapter 4, and it's very, well, one writer called it artless and natural. It just overflowed out of them. Uh, they, there was none of the ornamental embellishment that would come along later on in church history. It was just very simple prayers, very simple talking with God. These prayers, again, very simple. Again, probably pulling phraseology from their scriptures. Phrases and words and whole portions of the Old Testament finding their way into their prayers. They were praying God's word back to him. That seems to be what's, what, as we go back to this quote from Shepherd, diligently, uh, the, so diligent were they in the divine employment that prayer succeeded reading of, word, of the word and the reading of the word to prayer because they go one with the other. Notice how this is bookended, these four items here of apostolic teaching, so devotion to the Word, and then fellowship, breaking of the bread, and then prayers. Word and prayer bookend those things, and they are both vital and essential. You know, this is part of why, as bad as COVID and the global pandemic has been, one of the good things and the beautiful things that's come about from this is We've had to renew our emphasis on daily prayer. We have had the digital platforms in order to devote ourselves to prayer on Facebook and through YouTube. And so I'm, I'm prayerful that you are taking advantage of those things. Because this is the way in which, again, we stand upon the rich heritage that we have inherited from even the Jerusalem church, the first church. We see these things, they were continually devoting themselves to. But then we can go further. And not only do we see their devotion, but we also see their benevolence. Verse uh, 44. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them, uh, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is a picture of benevolence. This is a picture of what a church does. We meet needs, especially the needs of the body, one another. Uh, now, it is true that these verses here have been read as kind of a biblical endorsement of some kind of, I don't know, Christian communism or socialism. But what we see here in the Jerusalem church is not even remotely close to communism or socialism in the least, those political systems, they do emphasize sharing. Uh, to each his own as he has need, from each his, his own as he has prospered. But the difference between what we read here in Scripture and these political systems of communism and socialism is that communism and socialism are compulsory. You are forced to give your stuff. Uh, the goods of the rich are taken from them and then redistributed. It is not a voluntary thing. It is forced. It is coercion. And even between the two, communism and socialism, there is a shade of difference. See, socialism still recognizes the right of private property. It denies that you should have too many of a particular good. Oh, you have too much? We've got to take it from you and, and then we'll distribute and usually that limit of how much personal property you can have is determined arbitrarily by the intelligentsia. 
those political systems, they differ vastly from what these Christians were doing here in verses 44 and 45. And one fundamental way that they differ is that these Christians willingly, they freely gave their goods in order to support their siblings. They had all things in common. In other words, you didn't have the apostolic college down there saying, give, give, give. You have too much. We take it from you. And don't you understand? Your siblings have needs. These Christians gladly and willingly sacrificed and gave, probably stemming from what the apostles were teaching. Uh, They were to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And one of the things that Jesus commanded was a new command. A new command I give you, that you should love one another. As I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And so from that, that's John 13, verses 34 and 35, by the way. From that teaching, that new command from Jesus issued forth in love for one another. And so they were freely giving and benevolent toward one another. Again, no board, no body of enforcement here, demanding and taking. But it was, it was because God had been so generous to them. How could they not be generous to their brothers and sisters? And so they gladly gave. And in a similar way, that's what we do today. Uh, we do it a little different now, thanks to the global pandemic. We have the boxes on the wall to take up contribution. And, and those funds are taken, collected, and then utilized in ministry to help those who need help, especially in the body. But then we do good for all people. Do we have, which, which, is it here? Is it, no. The very next verse, verse 10 of Galatians 6, is to do good to all people, especially to the household of faith. And so, yeah, we, we stand upon this heritage as well. What does a church do? We meet needs. Uh, and by the way, one, one way in which we do it week in and week out is every Thursday during the Showers of Love ministry. But not only are we helping the, the homeless population who come to us, thanks to the generous donations that we get through Second Harvest, we get about 1,000 pounds of Starbucks that we then take, and Brother Terry McHenry, and usually with a helper, could be John uh, Shook sometimes. Other times, I think uh, Angel has gone out. Others have, David uh, Tostado may have gone out. But members take the food out to the highways and the byways. Seems like I've read that somewhere. And we distribute those goods to those who have need. Making sure that, first and foremost, we honor God. We recognize the human dignity of each of these individuals. And then meet a felt need. Make sure they have a full belly by the end of the day. Yeah, we use what we have for others. We also see next, and this is perhaps related to the benevolence, this church, the Jerusalem church, was devoted to service. And I I see this here in verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. 
Now, how do you have favor with all the people except you are engaged in the community doing good for the community, serving the community in various ways? And so, and the way this is written here, having favor, they were continually having favor with the community because, again, it seems as though they were continually serving their community as best they could. And so, because they're serving, the community took notice and looked upon them with favor. With grace is literally what the word there for favor is. This had an impact on the people. And you notice the very next sentence, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a missionary context. The Holy Spirit was, well, He is a sending spirit, and that means that the Holy Spirit-filled church, the Jerusalem church, was a missionary church in their particular location. <clears throat> now, Jerusalem church has much to be commended for. But there is one glaring issue here, and even though they are essentially doing mission work there in Jerusalem, you don't see a lot of sending and, and going out. In fact, the, the first seven chapters of Acts, you don't see a lot of going, a lot of sending out. It's not until you get to Acts chapter 8 that the church finally begins to fulfill the vision of Christ in Acts chapter 1, which is you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Sumeria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, the, the church is begun. And when we get to Acts chapter 8, it will explode. And that will come because of the fiery furnace of persecution at the hands of one, Saul of Tarsus, who himself will have an encounter with Jesus and, of course, become one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known, Paul the Apostle. Whatever, wherever they ended up, the early church, even though they may have been driven there, wherever they found themselves, they were about making disciples. When you get to Acts 8 and verse 4, those who were scattered, who's that? The church. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, by the way. The church is scattered. But those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. This is a missionary spirit, brothers and sisters, that we need to recapture today. I believe we have opportunity coming out of this global pandemic in order to relaunch and refocus as a missionary church right here in Modesto and the greater Stanislaus area. What does it look like, Nick? That's a good question. And as a leader, I don't know. But I do know that the same spirit which was alive and at work in my brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church in the first century, is still alive and at work in the body today. And so we need to have our eyes open, our ears to the ground, ready and willing, saying, Lord, here am I, send me. That's what it's going to take, brothers and sisters, coming out of this global pandemic uh, in order to truly be a missional church. One more thing we see is we see their unity. We see it again and again here with uh, together. 
with things like one mind in verse 46. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. They were united in that same sense, right? Now look, there are few things that can hurt and damage the body of Christ as much as controversy and disagreement. But maintaining the bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit, valuing that over and above whatever opinions I may hold or you may have, that is the most important thing. The Holy Spirit, He's the author of that unity. Christians are continually to be pursuing and guarding this unity, maintaining it, ready and willing to exert effort and energy in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In their day, it was uh, Jews and Gentiles together in one body who needed to work together in order to maintain the unity procured by Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. Today, we have an obligation to do the same. To fulfill this obligation, it requires the obliteration of self. To fulfill the obligation of unity requires the obliteration of self. Someone has said, self kills peace. But when we deny ourselves, when we crucify ourselves, Christ can live in and through us. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. The church then can fulfill the call for unity, and can fully maintain the unity and the oneness that God has achieved when we put self to death. What does the church do? The church devotes itself to a number of things. We've seen them, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and a prayer. What does the church, what does the church do? We engage in benevolence, good works to meet needs, service related to that. What does the church do? We maintain unity with one another. These, and there's, this is by no means exhaustive, but these are the things that we see in the Jerusalem church after the day of Pentecost. It is upheld as a, a model for us to follow. But all of this, I hope you see, it is connected to what we talked about mm, a couple weeks ago when we talked about the great commands through the Great Commission. Look back at verse 47 again. The church, they were praising God. What's the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Praising God? That, that sounds like loving God. And so these Christians, they first and foremost, they loved God because of the grace that had been given to them. But then also notice, having favor with all the people. And if we connect that, with an inference here to service and to the benevolence of the first century church. Well, having favor with all people, what's the second greatest command? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this church was doing. And because they were loving their neighbor as they loved themselves, they were having favor. They were continually having favor with all the people around them. And then notice how the verse ends. The Lord was adding to their number. They didn't just sit back and oh, we'll, we'll, we'll let the fish come to us. They went out and went fishing. 
They were making disciples of those who were around them as the community was taking notice. What is it Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15? That when you sanctify Christ in your heart as Lord, you are to make a defense for the hope that is within you. To everyone who asks with gentleness and respect, the community took notice, presented the church with opportunities to make disciples, and the Lord was faithful, and the Lord was gracious, and he added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That sounds an awful lot like the Great Commission. That all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. And then we are to go, therefore, and make disciples. Based on His authority, having all authority, we go, therefore, and we make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that the Lord has commanded. And we have the promise that He is with His church even to the end of the age. This, my brothers and sisters, is what a church does. Of course, there are other things. But we'll have to talk about that some other time. Let's commit this to prayer, shall we? Gracious Lord, you have been gracious to us that we, in turn, may be generous and gracious with others. We see the example that has been recorded for us here in Acts of the Jerusalem church. Like any church, they had their shortcomings, but they were devoted. May we, in the same way, be devoted. They engaged in good works and service. May we follow that example and continue to do that. They were united. And may we present the glorious unity of the church to the world around us. Lord God, kindle within us by your spirit a missionary spirit and a missionary attitude and vision that we recognize that the fields truly are light for the harvest around us, and that you are raising us up as laborers in your field. May we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And may we make disciples and allow you to add to our number. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's prepare for the table at this time. In the light of him.